Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, is there a war going on between science and religion? Is it wrong to say that God somehow could be a cause, either of the universe or of life or of subsequent life forms? Is that out of bounds if you're a scientist? Well, there's a book that I've been waiting for for several years now because my friend Stephen C. Meyer said he was going to write it, and it's coming out March 30th. If you're listening to this after March 30th, you can pick it up right away. The brand new book by Stephen Meyer. And you know, Stephen has written Signature in the Cell and Darwin, uh, uh, Darwin's Doubt. And uh, they, they have been fabulous works. But the brand new book is called The Return of the God Hypothesis. I'm about halfway through this book right now. It's 500 pages, but it doesn't read as an academic work. It does have academic information in it, but it is very well written, very easy to understand. Anybody can understand what Stephen is saying in this book, and you need to see what he's saying in the book. So we're going to have him on not only today, but next week as well, because there is so much in this book. And for those of you who don't know Stephen Meyer, you ought to. He has his PhD from the University of Cambridge in philosophy of science. He has written, as I mentioned, several New York Times bestsellers, including Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt. And this one is destined to be a bestseller as well. He is a senior fellow. Actually, he directs part of the Discovery Institute. And he has been in this field for more than 35 years, looking at the origin of life, subsequent life forms, and also cosmology. So it's always great to have Steve on. Steve, how are you? I'm very well, Frank, and always enjoy talking to you. It's great to be... Great to reconnect over Zoom. Yeah, I know, man. It's We've been all locked down. I know you've been locked down even more so out there in Seattle, but uh, it's a great uh, privilege to have you on. And I'm telling you, this book is very well written and very well resourced, by the way. I think, I don't know how many pages of footnotes you have in here, Steve, but I start reading the footnotes and I'm going, man, that's a book in itself. How long did it take you to pull this together? Uh, I've been thinking about it for 35 years, as you mentioned, but uh, uh, the actual writing took about three and a half years. So it's, it's, it's been the most formidable of my three big projects. Well, you know what I like about it too, Steve? It's, um, it's not just a bunch of information. It's actually a story. It's part history book and part science book. And you put it together to say, this is sort of the history of science, and this is where we're heading now. Why is the God hypothesis returning? First of all, what is the God hypothesis in a nutshell, and why is it returning? Well, right, the, the God hypothesis is the idea that um, the existence of God explains key events better than other competing metaphysical or scientific hypotheses, key events in the history of the universe and life, in particular, the origin of the universe, the origin of what physicists call its fine-tuning, and the origin of the information needed to explain the origin of life and the subsequent uh, development of life. So there are big events in the history of life in the universe that are best explained by positing a certain kind of intelligence 
an intelligence that has the attributes that Jews and Christians have long ascribed to God. Transcendence, intelligence, and therefore a, a personal uh, uh, agency, and also an agent who is active in the creation. Not a deistic creator who only work, works at the beginning, not a space alien who only works from within the cosmos, but an agent that can create the universe as a whole with its finely tuned structure that allows for possibility of life. So I call it a hypothesis because uh, from our point of view, um, we are trying to explain the world that we see around us. And we, we as part of the function of, of human reason, we postulate ideas about what might exist that can explain the things we see. And it turns out that the postulation of the existence of God does the best job of explaining crucial events about biological and cosmological origins. That doesn't mean, as some of my, uh, my friends on Facebook have been saying, that uh, God is only a hypothesis, only something in the human mind. It just means that if we, from our vantage point as humans, postulate the existence of God, we can have uh, we, we find that we can best explain the observations that we make around us, which is a reason to, to, to think that God does actually exist, by the way. That's so right. it's, yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to get, I know people who are watching right now or listening right now are thinking already, oh, this is a big God of the gaps book. This is all just God of the gaps thinking. We're going to get to that. If we don't get to it in this show, we'll get to it in next week's show. But Steve, you just oh right, I didn't get to the I didn't get to the second part of your your question before, oh, ahead, which is what, what's the story? You know, because yeah, there's a big yeah, story okay. here, right? Uh -huh. And and, the, and the, in fact, the title invites the telling of a story. And hold uh, hold on, just a second. Go ahead. Yeah, the point I was going to make here, uh, Steve, is the fact that uh, those three things you mentioned: the origin of the universe, the fine tuning of the universe and the information found in biological life are really the three major discoveries you're looking into. But go ahead with the story. If right, you right, exactly. Well, the title invites a story because to say that the God hypothesis has returned is to say that there was a time when the theistic perspective about the natural world was lost. And in fact, that's the case, that in the late 19th century, a, a worldview known as scientific materialism became dominant. But to say that it's returned is to say that it also was present long before that, that it was present in fact, and this is the argument in the book, is that the theistic perspective of, in fact, a biblical perspective was crucial to the rise of modern science during the period of roughly 1300 to 1750, and especially in the very crucial period of between 1500 and 1750, uh, when uh, historians of science describe the rapid uh, expansion of scientific investigation, of the development of a systematic method for, uh, or methods for investigating nature first arose. And arose in Western Europe in a decidedly Judeo-Christian milieu. And what I show is that numerous historians of science now recognize the role of um, Judeo-Christian ideas in the formulation of what we now think of as modern science, and that that didn't happen in Western Europe for an accident. It happened there because there were certain ideas in currency that made the investigation of nature seem, A, possible, and B, a kind of natural extension of the the, the religious piety that many people felt, that they, they thought that studying nature was a way of studying God's handiwork, and they expected to find uh, lawful order, evidence of design, 
and they expected to be able to understand it. They had a key watchword, which was intelligibility. They believed that nature was intelligible. It could be understood because it had been made by the mind of a rational creator or with the guidance and design of a rational creator, the same creator who had made our minds in his image and had, had endowed us with rationality so that we could understand the rationality, the design and the order that had been built into nature. That was a unique set of presuppositions that existed in Western Europe that made, made science possible. And once these early scientists began to investigate nature, they also found that having investigated it, there was in fact ample evidence of design and order. And that became the, 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 what, what historians call the scientific revolution. So, it, so early on, we had that theistic perspective. It gave rise to science in the late 19th century in the wake of figures like Darwin, Marx, Freud, Huxley, and others. That was lost. A new worldview came to dominate our perspective on science, known as scientific materialism. And the argument of the book is that there have been three great discoveries that have been made uh, over the last 100 years, first in cosmology, then in physics, and then finally in biology, that are bringing back that theistic perspective, or at least should, and I make that case in the book. Well, this is the book to get, friends. The book, again, is called The Return of the God Hypothesis, and Stephen gives you a history of science and history of thought on this as he's giving you the evidence for those three great discoveries he just mentioned. And when we come back from the break, we're going to get a little bit into that evidence after we talk a little bit more about the history of science. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamine.org. Steve's website is discovery.org. And you can also type in the return of the God hypothesis and get the website for the book and maybe even get on a Zoom with Steve coming up on April 24th if you buy the book in advance. So if you want to be a part of that, check out the God Hypothesis dot or return of the God Hypothesis dot com. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. The return of the God Hypothesis, a brand new book by New York Times bestselling author Stephen C. Meyer, Dr. Stephen C. Meyer. And uh, this book is even more of an important book than his first two, which were critical books in the field, Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt. This actually takes elements of both those books and goes further. In fact, Steve actually arrives at a place where he is going to say that there is a being called God out there from these discoveries that he talks about in the book. He didn't say that so much in the first two books, but he does so here, and we're going to talk about it here in just a minute. Before I do, I want to mention that our brand new course on the Great Book of Romans starts on the 30th of March, same day the uh, Return of the God Hypothesis comes out. If you want to be a part of it, go to, uh, go to uh, crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. If you take the premium version, you'll be on Zoom with me on nine different occasions for Q&A. So I hope to see you in the Great Book of Romans course. Steve, something really struck me. In fact, I started in the book when I was reading it on page 21, and you, you hinted at this a minute ago, but I want you to unpack it a little bit. You said this, the Chinese invented the compass block printing and gunpowder. The Romans built great roads and aqueducts, and the Greeks had great philosophers, some of whom studied nature extensively. Yet none of these cultures developed the systematic methods for investigating nature, investigating nature that arose in Western Europe between about 1500 and 1750. Why not? Who, who, who brought this system? It's, it's, it's easy for me to say. Who brought the idea to systematize nature? 
Well, this was a Judeo-Christian idea, and m- many historians have asked exactly this question, why, why then, why there? And they've looked for the answer to the why then, why there question in the uh, <clears throat> realm of the, ma- the material conditions for doing science. You have to, to do science, you have to have a certain level of affluence, there have to be some people who can devote time to that, and not just uh, do uh, raising you know, the basic necessities of life. Uh, you have to have a certain level of technical sophistication. But all of those conditions existed in these other earlier and very sophisticated cultures. But what happened in Europe, uh, and this is what the historians of science have come to, is that there was a shift in the world of ideas. It was a, uh, a one great historian, uh, Herbert Butterfield, said there had to be a transposition of thinking, in particular in Western Europe, from the from the Greek approach to looking at nature to the, the more Judeo-Christian one. The Greeks were great at armchair philosophizing. And many of them actually studied nature as well, but they believed that there, and they even believed that there was an order in nature, but they believed that the order was derivative of a kind of intrinsic logic. They had this concept of logos and that there was a logic that was built, that was built into nature that governed everything, but it didn't come from a personal God. And in their view, it had to be because things were logically necessary or because everything was logical, things had to be logically necessary. They had to appear to be what seemed most logically um, sensible to us. So they assumed that all orbits, for example, must be circular. Uh, Why? Because this circle is the perfect shape. But it turned out that that's not the kind of order that was actually present in nature. Kepler later discovered that they were elliptical. And what the Christian, the Geo-Christian contribution to this was, is that there was the concept of what was thought of as a, an impressed order, that there, what, there's, uh, just as there's lots of different ways to skin a cat or lots of ways to uh, make a, I used to use this example when I was teaching, a paintbrush, you've got 15 different kinds of paintbrushes, and they all are <clears throat> uh, the same basic kind of thing, but they are tailored to the type of painting you want to do. And so what the Christians realized was that because nature was a, a creation, it wasn't a logically necessary system that had always been here. It was a creation of a creator. Yes, there was order in it, but it could have been many different kinds of order. Maybe we have ellipses. Maybe we have circles. Who knows? Maybe the, the orbits were square. We don't know. Um, you have to go and look. And that was the key idea, that nature was contingent on a creator. Therefore, we can't reason to what it must be. We have to go and examine what it is. Robert Boyle said, we shouldn't ask what the creator must have done, we need to go and look and see what he did do. And that, in other words, inspired an empirical approach to the study of nature, not just thinking about it deductively, which the Greeks had done. And so as as you look at the the many conditions for getting science going, it happens that the Judeo-Christian worldview provided those, uh, the intellectual presuppositions, the idea that nature is contingent and needs to be examined empirically, that it's intelligible because it was made by a rational creator who made our minds, the idea that it's orderly because God is a God of order, and uh, and and so on. So you, the, the um, there were multiple intellectual contributions of the Judeo-Christian worldview that inspired science, and one of which was the simple desire to glorify the Creator by examining His works. Um, the Book of Romans says that we can know about the attributes of God, His eternal power and divine nature from the things that have been made. One of the earliest works in biology by John Ray had a uh, <clears throat> had the title "The Works of God Manifested in." Uh, or, uh, 
works of nature manifest the works of God manifested in nature in two parts, <laughs> and it was a, a simple paraphrase of, of Romans of Romans one. So the, this, this desire to glorify God was was part of the inspiration for for science. In fact, Rodney Stark, one of the great historians of science, wrote a book with Princeton University Press called For the Glory of God, which was all about exactly this inspiration for modern science. Now, you point out, again, the book is called Return of the God Hypothesis. Part of the story that you tell, Steve, is that the early or the founders of modern science were all or mostly Christian because of this very idea that they believed in an order in nature because they believed God is orderly and we're thinking God's thoughts after him or we're discovering a, a God's quote thoughts from after Kepler. him. Yeah, exactly. Yes. exactly. So why, um, I, I can hear the atheist saying, well, you know, that was all pre-Darwin. You know, nobody thinks that way anymore. How would you respond to that? Well, I think we're now post-Darwin is the short answer. But I mean, the story I tell in the book is, is you know, I, uh, there's a lot in the book about Newton, who was an extraordinary figure. Uh, uh -huh. He had a deep theology of nature. In other words, he brought these biblical presuppositions about the nature of God and about nature to his study of nature. But he also, upon observation of, of <clears throat> systems in the natural world, made, a, made very elegant design arguments. He had a, a design argument in the optics, his study of light, which was at the time the, by far and away the most advanced study of, of uh, optical phenomenon that had ever been undertaken. And he made this argument for des the design of the eye, not just because of the structure of the eye, but also because of the way the eye anticipated the properties of light. And he said that wow. suggested a foresight that that was uh, very hard to explain otherwise. He had a beautiful argument in the general scolium to the Principia, the epilogue to his great work, in which he provided the the kind of theological significance, explained this, the theological significance of the work. And there he made a, a beautiful initial condition fine-tuning argument about the origin of the solar system. So uh, uh, Newton made these wonderful design arguments, but it is true in the late 19th century, Darwin came along, and and argued that we don't have any evidence of actual design, only the appearance of design, because there's an unguided, undirected process, namely natural selection acting on random variations uh, <clears throat> that can explain the appearance of design without itself being guided or directed in any way. In other words, his natural selection idea was a designer substitute. It was, uh, it was a process which he thought could mimic the powers of a designing intelligence without any design or guidance involved. And that did, I think, for, uh, for in, in very large measure, uh, produce an intellectual shift within the scientific community. After Darwin, for quite a long time, the scientific materialist worldview has dominated. It still dominates as a default way of thinking in many of our research universities, especially in Western countries. But I think that's beginning to change. And I think the science, the evidence of the last 100 years, uh, first in cosmology, then in physics, but also in biology, have shown that we have evidence of actual design, not just the appearance of design. And of course, in my first two books, and in a bit in this one as well, I talk about the uh, and discuss the evidence for design that we find at the very foundation of life in the digital code that's present in the DNA and in the complex information uh, processing system that's at work in every living cell. This is uh, evidence that has not been explained. The Darwinian mechanism has done a very poor job of explaining the origin of information because random mutations degrade information. They don't generate it. And therefore, we need a different type of explanation to explain the origin of the information that we now know is necessary to build every living organism on the planet. 
I know we're going to get into that in more detail either later in this show or next week, Steve, but I want to pause here for a second and ask this question. This morning I was reading again, the book is called The Return of the God Hypothesis by Stephen C. Meyer. You need to get this book, trust me. Um, I was reading this morning, you were talking uh, about, uh, oh, Sean Carroll, he's, my, my name just, the name just went out of my head for a second. And he was saying, he's a materialist, so he thinks everything happens by natural laws, right? Natural forces cause everything. Of course, he never stops to think that if natural forces cause everything, those natural, same natural forces caused his thought that natural forces cause everything. So why should he believe it? But let, let me leave that aside for a second. My question is, do, do, do people like Sean Carroll or any other naturalists, any other atheists out there ever try to explain where the laws of nature come from and why they are so precise and accurate and, and so consistent? Where do the laws come from, Steve? Well, this is a very deep uh, question in the philosophy of science that uh, very few uh, scientists actually engage. I appreciate Sean Carroll among the scientific naturalists for several reasons. One, uh, Carroll acknowledges that, that naturalism or scientific naturalism is a worldview, and it is his worldview, and yes. that there are other worldviews, and so he takes the time to defend it and to argue for it. Many scientists that you encounter today simply um, assume a kind of scientific naturalistic or materialistic worldview without even being aware that they're bringing a set of worldview assumptions to their claims about science. They, they make science and their worldview uh, equivalent. Cheryl, Carol doesn't do that. He actually says, look, mm -hmm. this is a worldview and uh, here's why I hold it. And he, he makes the argument. Um, as to the laws of nature, there's a very deep question as to what they are. Are they mere human descriptions of regularities that happen we know not why? Are they entities within nature or are they human descriptions that actually correspond to the way God has chosen to order nature? In other words, is there a, is there a cause behind the laws of nature that explains their universality, their regularity, their yes. mathematical precision? Mm -hmm. That third view is the view of Isaac Newton or was the view of Isaac Newton, and it was the view of the early founders of modern science. After all, the, the, the idea of the laws of nature is a metaphor, and it, it turns out that it's a metaphor, it's a juridical metaphor of theological origin. I'm quoting one of the leading historians of science on this. It came literally, the concept you find in the book of Job, and, and it's appropriated by scientists during this period of late medieval Catholic theology and in the early period of the Reformation. And so, um, I had a, a memorable tutorial with my Cambridge uh, supervisor my first year on exactly this topic. And he said, your view of the laws of nature makes sense. And my view makes sense. His view was they were just human descriptions. But the one view that doesn't make sense is the view that most physicists hold, which is that they are somehow, the laws are entities that cause things to happen. Um, we well, go, we don't thought, see the Steve. laws of nature. Yeah, hold, we only- Hold the thought. We we're only... going to come right back because we're coming up against a hard break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk. My guest is Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, the new book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. Get it. We're back in two. The Return of the God Hypothesis with Dr. Stephen Meyer. He's my guest today. Actually, the, the actual title of the book is Return of the God Hypothesis. Don't put the the in front of it, not the article. We're talking about this fabulous new book that looks at three major discoveries over the past century or so. That has to, have, they have to do with the origin of the universe, the fine tuning of the universe, and the discovery of vast quantities of very specified and complex information 
in the biological world. And Steve has done a wonderful job pulling all the information together on that, as well as putting it in its historical context. As we said at the top of the program, although he doesn't look as old as he is, he's been doing this for 35 years in the field with uh, some of the best scientists in the world. And this book is so far been very well received. It's got some amazing reviews up at Amazon. You can see them there. And Steve, just before the break, we were talking about the laws of nature. And maybe we could just review that again. You say there are three kind of um, hypotheses about where the laws of nature come from or what they are. Can you go over that again? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of, we, we talk about the laws of nature, especially if you're trained in the sciences, you want to, you, you want to generate laws of nature to describe regular phenomena in nature. And they're often invoked as ultimate explanatory principles. But there's something that if you ask, well, what is a law of nature, then you get into a little bit of a deeper question. It's a, a question in the philosophy of science. And there are three basic views. One is that the laws of nature are mathematical descriptions of regularities that happen. We know not why. They're not causes. They're just descriptions of the things that always happen. Sun up, sun, sun, sun down, you know, all unsuspended bodies fall. If you think of gravity, you could describe it that way, um, and so on. Uh, another view is that the laws of nature are entities or things that cause things to happen, that cause the regularities. But that's a very curious view because the because laws of nature are nothing more they are written down on a piece of paper in a, with a mathematical expression. So it begs the question, how does a mathematical idea that we hold in our minds or that we may perceive, uh, but, but which we cannot see, cause actual material uh, movements or interactions to occur? That's it's curious. Many scientists kind of default to that way of thinking, but it's philosophically really hard to defend. And then the third view, which is was the view of the early modern science scientists, is that the laws of nature are descriptions, mathematically precise descriptions of regularities in nature, which, if accurate and true, correspond to the way God is holding the universe together. Newton, in the general scholium to the Principia, quote, roughly paraphrased the first chapter of uh, the book of Colossians, when he said that in him all things are uh, are, are move and are held together. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm maybe I got the quote a little bit wrong, but it's it, yeah. he thought, and in fact, one of my Cambridge supervisors said that if you miss Newton's theism, you've missed everything. That he thought the laws of nature were a mode of constant spirit action, and this this view of the laws came about in part because of this very um, poignant and um, spirited disagreement he had with the German uh, philosopher Leibniz. Leibniz attacked Newton's universal law of gravitation and it, it, he developed in the Principia because Newton described what this mysterious aspect of gravity, which is, was, was known as action at a distance. If you drop a wallet or a ball to the, there is no physical interaction between the earth and that object that moves from one place to another. The moon is thought to cause tidal action, yet the moon does not touch the water on the earth. It doesn't push it, uh, but somehow there is a force being transmitted through a distance. And Leibniz said, how is that scientific to explain gravitation by reference to action by there's no pushing and pulling there there's no cause being being cited and and prior to that time the early scientists were trying to develop mechanical models for explanation they were sometimes scientists were called mechanical philosophers if there was there needed to be a pushing and pulling mechanism to provide an adequate explanation newton didn't do that newton 
precisely describe the force of, of gravity that was at work or the degree of attraction, if you will. But there was no physical interaction in his account of gravitation. So Leibniz said either uh, this is a recourse to absurdities, either gravity is false or it's a recourse to perpetual miracle. And um, and Newton, in a private correspondence, Newton didn't want to admit to the perpetual miracle idea that it was actually that what we call gravity and describe precisely with this beautiful mathematics is an expression of divine action. It's a uh, it's a, mo a mode of divine action. But um, in a private correspondence with a man named Bishop Bentley, who was giving the Boyle lectures on natural theology in 1691. Um, he acknowledged that he thought that the that gravitational force was actually produced by something immaterial that was constantly acting and universally throughout the universe. And Boyle act, or, um, uh, Bentley actually set up the question by saying, um, by, by saying, well, is this a mode of divine action in your view? And he said, yes, I like that view very much. And I tell the story in, in the book. And so um, one of my Cambridge supervisors summarized Newton's view of the laws by saying that 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 Newton thought they were that the what we call the law of gravity is a mode of constant spirit action that God, that's, there's no material cause so it must be an immaterial cause and yet it applies everywhere and always throughout the universe with a and can be quantified precisely mathematically can be described mathematically with precision so uh, and, and in this one tutorial I had he said he was a this supervisor was a, a sociology, a sociologist of knowledge who thought that even scientific knowledge was re just relative to persons or groups. And he said, my view of the laws makes sense. I believe they're mere descriptions. Your view makes sense because they're descriptions that correspond to an actual cause that can't, that is adequate to explain the universality and mathematical precision of the law. But the one view that doesn't make sense is the view that's held by most physicists, which is the laws are entities or things that cause things to happen. Um, he said that, we don't see those, you know, where, where are those, mm -hmm. those, those mm -hmm. laws? Uh, physicists who purport to be strict empiricists believe that laws that they can't see are doing something. So that doesn't make sense. Would it be accurate or more accurate to say this then, Steve, that when we say natural laws do X, Y, or Z, what we really mean is that the four natural forces we know about, gravity, strong and weak nuclear forces, and electromagnetism are in some way combining to cause the effect in question. Is that, but the, the, well, that's I, I the would, question, where do the forces I, come from? Well, Why I would put it so some, persistent? yeah, uh, with the, and that was the, that, that's the key mystery. At the foundational level of physics, you have these regularities that occur, and we describe them with these four fundamental laws, the four fundamental forces, um, but we can't say exactly what's causing the things to occur. There's mm -hmm. the, the regularities, what we call uh, and, and it hasn't changed with the, our new ideas about gravity, for example. You know, uh, Einstein uh, replaced Newton or supplemented Newton. and But his idea of what causes gravity is the curvature, uh, matter, uh, massive bodies curve space or space-time. But space is empty, and yet, and the, yet its curvature somehow also influences how then things move through space. So, you, again, you have no pushing and pulling. There's no mechanical interaction. That's in turn being... Uh, possibly replaced by ideas coming out of string theory with gravitons and so forth. But gravitons aren't pushers either. They're massless pullers. And so how does something that, so they're attractors again. So there's something very mysterious about these fundamental laws of physics where everything is held together in a, in a regular way that we can describe mathematically, but we, can, we, do, we cannot ascribe to them 
material causation, material efficient causation. It's not, uh, and so there's something very mysterious about them. And they, they, uh, and we do not really know what causes gravitation or the strong or weak nuclear force or electromagnetic. We, we use those terms to describe what always happens. We know not why. In, in him, we live and move and have our being. And the writer of Hebrews says that God sustains all things by his powerful word. Seems well, th- to me this was the original right. concept of the laws yeah. of nature, that it was yeah. a sustaining power of God that manifested mm-hmm. itself in the orderly concourse of nature. And we really haven't, you know, my, my uh, atheistic sociology of, uh, sociologist of science supervisor said we really haven't moved beyond that you know Newton's concept of laws in 300 years. The, so but it, it seems we, related we, to Aristotle's unmoved mover, who was saying there had to be a consistent cause every second. Aquinas picks that up and says this is going to be my fifth way to argue for God. Final causality, nature's going in a direction. It seems like Newton's saying the same thing. Am I right? Well, those teleological arguments were a little different, and maybe we can get into that in the next sec- uh-huh. segment when we talk about some of the evidence for God beyond this conundrum about what what exactly the laws of nature are well, let's do that let's let's yeah. let's move into it let's start with cosmology if we will yeah. if we can the, sure the creation of the universe out of nothing that appears to be the case from the evidence what kind of evidence do you provide in return of the god hypothesis for that well three main lines of evidence the first come from a, a whole different set of cla- a whole class of evidence from observational astronomy the evidence of so-called redshift the light coming from the distant galaxies we now understand is being sh- is being stretched out and if light waves are longer elongated then the spectral lines that we get from the, the light will be shifted in the red en- towards the red end of the electromagnetic spectrum your your listeners will know that if you shine light through a prism it will separate from red to violet the red light corresponds to light with longer wavelengths the violet shorter so if you have objects that are moving away and the light looks redder than it should otherwise look that's an indication of their their recessional velocity they're moving from you away from you stretching out the light kind of like the doppler effect with mm-hmm, sound mm-hmm. the train whistle moves away on the train the pitch will drop mm, corresponding to that stretching out of the sound waves uh, so that was one of the big initial pieces of evidence Additionally, there was the discovery in the 1960s of something called the cosmic background radiation, which was the low, uh, the the low free, or uh, again long wavelength, very very um, the the radiation, kind of remnant yeah. the remnant heat radiation yeah. left over uh, from the. The, the, the point in the early universe when all of the matter and energy would have been congealed into one hot, dense point right after the beginning, uh, something that the Big Bang theory predicted, but the alternative theory of the steady state did not. So when it was discovered in the 1960s, so the, and there have been another number of other uh, lines of evidence in uh, observational astronomy. But then in addition, there have been developments in theoretical physics, the application of Einstein's theory of general relativity to understanding the origin of the universe. If matter is bending space-time, if it's curving space-time, if we back extrapolate in an expanding universe, the matter of the galaxies would have been closer and closer and closer and closer together as you go back progressively in time. And that as matter got more densely compacted, space would become more tightly curved mm. and there is a point in the finite past and this was was established by Stephen Hawking in his PhD dissertation in 1966 and then by Hawking and Penrose and then by Hawking in conjunction with a great physicist George Ellis from South Africa um, showing that it's some there is a limiting case where if you go back far enough the curvature of space goes to an infinite 
corresponding to zero spatial volume, We're gonna marking the beginning of the universe. Right after the break, that's the creation point, and Stephen has just given us some of the evidence for that. Again, the book is Return of the God Hypothesis by Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, a New York Times best-selling author. He is also one of the leaders at the Discovery Institute, discovery.org. We've got one more segment with Steve this week and then all next week as well, so don't miss next week's show. I'm Frank Turek, back in two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk. My guest is Stephen Meyer. Before I get back to Steve, I want to mention that on Saturday, April 10th, I'll be at the Navigate Worldview Conference in Fort Worth, Texas. And the next day, I'll be speaking at Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth as well. All the details are on our website, crossexamine.org. Just go to uh, events and you'll see the calendar there. Now, Steve, before we get back to the topic here, are you going to be speaking about this book anytime soon, anywhere? Can you tell people where they well, can right, see it? Well, right now I'm doing a lot of a lot of media, either through Zoom or talk radio. But uh, okay. we um, will probably have some. I mean, I'm doing a webinar tonight. I did a lecture yesterday to a bunch of Guatemalan professors. So right now I'm doing it, you know, <laughs> mainly virtually. But yeah, they'll they'll be speaking engagements. I'm sure in the fall um, as things start to open up. So. We'll well, keep friends, you posted. If you want to interact with Steve, you can, or you can at least have an opportunity to. Steve, if they, they pre-order the book right now, which means in the next couple of days they got to do it, they can go to what website and maybe get on with a Zoom with you. How do they do that? Uh, go to uh, returnofthegodhypothesis.com, and they'll find everything they need to do a pre-order. And then with the pre-order, I guess our guys are offering a 80% discount on an online course I've done on intelligent design, a booklet okay. I've written about intelligent design, a little uh, advanced uh, peek at the book, and then this uh, opportunity to participate in a in a, a, a freewheeling Zoom Q&A. So we'd be All happy right, to have more people part of that. Look out for that, returnofthegodhypothesis.com, but you got to do it in the next couple of days. Um, now, Steve, we were just talking about, you went through some of the cosmological evidence that the universe literally had a beginning, but I can already hear atheists saying two things. Number one, how do we know the universe came from nothing and not say a dense pellet? And number two, shouldn't we just choose agnosticism here, Steve? Okay, the universe had a beginning, but you know, how do we know what caused it? Well, let, let's start and uh, put, put this in a broader context and then I'll get back into the cosmology. Right. Um, Richard Dawkins has a wonderful quote, quote where he says, uh, uh, the, the universe has exactly the properties we should expect if at bottom there was no purpose, no design, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, the universe has the properties we should expect if scientific materialism were true. Mm -hmm. And uh, I use that as a framing device in the book. It's wonderful for a couple of reasons. One, because it defines the key issue. Secondly, it implies that metaphysical hypotheses or worldviews are every bit as testable against observations as uh, scientific hypotheses. And um, and so I take Dawkins at his word and I say, well, okay, well, well, are the properties of the universe what we would expect if scientific materialism were true, or are they more what we would expect if theism were true? And in the book, I argue that the three big discoveries that we've made about biological and cosmological, cosmological origins, namely that the universe had a beginning, that the universe has been finely tuned from the beginning, and that we have discovered these this digital code at the foundation of life arising since the beginning of the universe are things that you would expect given theism, given the God hypothesis, given a God who's both transcendent and active in the creation, but they're not at all what you would expect on the basis of 
scientific materialism or scientific atheism. Now, that's not to say that defenders of scientific uh, materialism can't invent auxiliary hypotheses that attempt to accommodate those uncomfortable facts within their system, and of course they do. But what I show in the book is that when they do that, the alternative hypotheses they generate, such as the multiverse or such as something called quantum cosmology, end up having uh, subtle or implicit theistic implications themselves, that they don't get around the God hypothesis by uh, inventing these, these auxiliary hypotheses. Now, back to the cosmology. It is true that you can't absolutely prove that the universe had a beginning because no one was there to observe it, so you can't prove it in that sense. But both the, obs the, the multiple lines of evidence we have from observational astronomy and then these developments within theoretical physics, the proof by Hawking, then by Hawking and, and Penrose, and then by Hawking and Ellis, that, the, that there was a, a true singularity um, suggests that, and that singularity means that, that there was a point in time when time began, there was a finite, there's a finite beginning to the universe, and even a finite beginning to space, that there was a point where the curvature of the universe went to an infinite, that was a limiting case, and at that point, you, it's no longer possible to reason physically beyond that. The laws of physics break down, there's no place to put anything material if there's no space, and time itself begins. So you can't talk about time before time on our timeline. So as the physicist Paul Davies has said, reasoning beyond that physical extremity becomes impossible, physical reasoning. So that means you can't posit a materialistic explanation for the origin of the universe because it's matter, space, time, and energy that come out of the singularity. You can't posit an explanation by re reference to the laws of physics because they begin at that point and do not exist before then. Now, there is a way around that. There is an auxiliary hypothesis that's been developed. It's called quantum cosmology, and it, it acknowledges, uh, or it's based on the 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 um, consider the, the the recognition that we uh, um, there are energy conditions that have to be met for general relativity to apply, and in the very smallest, tiniest smidgens of space, right after the beginning, those energy conditions might not have applied, and therefore we can't with absolute certainty back extrapolate to this ultimate be beginning. Now, it turns out that there's another proof, not based on general relativity, but one based on special relativity, which I explain in the book, and it's actually pretty easy to understand, that shows that there was, e even without respect to those energy conditions, they don't need to be met for special relativity to apply. And uh, this is called the board guth vilenkin theorem. It's based on special relativity, and it too proves that there was a beginning to time. Hmm. But if you set that aside and say, okay, Let's not go with a relativistic understanding of the origin of the universe. Let's do a quantum understanding of the origin of the universe. That the, the, the way to understand the early universe is with the math of quantum physics, because the universe was, after all, very small at the beginning. Um, and that those theories called quantum cosmology uh, have been posited as refutations of the beginning, uh, or at least refutations of the singularity theorem, or as an alternative view of the origin of the universe that doesn't involve a singularity. But I show in the book that they, too, have theistic implications. In particular, they explain the universe as coming out of math, out of what's called a universal wave function, importing ideas from quantum physics. But that's very weird because math exists in the conceptual realm of the mind. And one of the physicists who actually developed this idea, Alexander Vilenkin, has recognized that and says, what could have existed what tablet could these quantum laws of physics have been written on before there was matter, space, time, and energy? 
math exists in the realm of the mind. Are we therefore saying that a mind predated the universe? And so mm -hmm. even these ideas uh, that have been used to circumvent the indications of an absolute beginning have ended up having theistic implications for other reasons. And that's, in philosophy, we call that a robust line of argument, where no matter which path you take, you end to this, uh, at the same conclusion. So when they say, Steve, why not just be agnostic and say we don't know what caused the universe, your response would be? My response is that every indication we have is that the universe had a beginning, from observational astronomy, from general relativity, and from special relativity. But if you want to circumvent that by going with a quantum cosmological origin of the universe, then you end up with a theistic conclusion for other reasons. And so you haven't eliminated the God hypothesis, whichever way you go, whichever cosmological model you use, you end up with a theistic implication. So if space, matter, and time had a beginning, or space, time, and matter had a beginning, is it fair to say that the cause must transcend space, time, and matter? That's the, that is exactly right. You can't invoke matter to explain the origin of matter because there was no matter before matter to do the causing. And interestingly, okay. even in the quantum cosmological models, the singularity is presupposed. Hawking did, made a big deal out of his um, elimination, his temporary elimination of the singularity in the process of a mathematical, a series of mathematical calculations where he transformed his depiction of the universe into the realm of complex numbers of imaginary time. But in his technical papers, he makes nothing of that because that's not really the object of what he's trying to do. And in any case, he acknowledges that the mathematics of, of complex numbers, the use, the use of imaginary time has no physical meaning. And yet he draws both a physical and a metaphysical implication of that in the brief history of time, something he doesn't try to do in his technical papers on quantum cosmology. Instead, in those papers, he presupposes still a cosmological singularity. It's presupposed in all of the work on quantum cosmology. So even there, they don't get rid of the beginning, but they try to give an alternative account of the universe in terms of the laws of physics that allows them to say things like Lawrence Krauss has said, I can explain the origin of the universe from nothing. But what he really means is he's explaining the origin of the universe from math, math the mathematical laws of quantum physics. And that raises a really profound philosophical issue, which is how does math cause things to happen? In our experience, math alone doesn't. Only math used by agents does. And math always exists in the mind of an agent. So are we really saying that the universe came from a mind? I think that is what is implied in quantum cosmology. Well, Steve, uh, we only got a couple of minutes to go, but this, what you just said there, and in fact, your, your whole education, you're a PhD in the philosophy of science, lays waste to the claim of both Krauss and Hawking, who said philosophy is dead, and I don't care what a philosopher says, that's what you know, Krauss said. Why is philosophy so important to science, I mean, you need well, to many interpret the data, right? Exactly. Well, all scientists are doing are making philosophical claims. They just yeah. often make philosophical claims that are poorly justified. And one of those is the one that Hawking made in relation to this quantum cosmology. He said, because there is a law such of gra such as gravity, the the universe uh, can and must come into existence. But right. law the laws of nature describe how matter and energy within the cosmos interact. They don't explain where matter and energy and the cosmos right. came from. That's not what laws do. So there's a category error that's a basic philosophical error in the in the thinking of, of folks like Hawking. As great a physicist as he was, here he does the philosophy of science very badly and it leads him to an erroneous conclusion. It shows the, uh, the wisdom of Einstein's quip that the man of science is a poor philosopher. 
unless he has a PhD from the philosophy of science from Cambridge, which you have. So friends, if you want to go further, you need to get, and you do want to go further, Return of the God Hypothesis by Stephen C. Meyer. As I say, it comes out on March 30th. And you want to be here next week because Steve and I are going to get together again and then get into fine tuning of the universe and also biology, the two other main discoveries of the past hundred years other than the creation of the universe out of nothing that show God is back. Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, and thanks for the great questions. Can't wait to talk about the biology and the digital code that's been discovered at the foundation of life, the software that makes the cell run. Looks like there was a master programmer. That's right. That's next week, friends. Thanks for being with us. I'm Frank Turek. See you next time. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.